When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This is Conspiranormal. Welcome, everybody. Flying by myself on this episode because uh, Sergio is out of town. But tonight, we've got a very interesting show, and we're going to talk again to W.T. Watson, who was on the uh, show. We figured it out back in March, um, talking about uh, his book, Mysteries in the Mist. And tonight, we're going to talk about Canadian monsters and mysteries. So welcome back, W.T. Welcome back to the show. Go by W.T. when I'm writing stuff, but... On podcasts, I'm Travis. Travis is fine. <laughs> excellent. Excellent. And thanks I, for having me again, Adam. <laughs> absolutely. I enjoyed having you last time. And sometimes I like to have you as WT Watson because I'll, mm-hmm. I don't want to, I don't want to say Travis Walton because it's really confusing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. No, I have not been um, sucked up into any alien spacecraft. Good, I, good. I, I, you, you, I will issue that disclaimer right now. You, you weren't, um, you, you weren't gone for five days and then, uh, no, they, I am, they, I they am found not now, nor have I ever been related to this individual. All know? right, all right. So. Good to know, you guys. You heard it first on Conspiracy Normal that they're, they're not one and the same person. No. Uh, <laughs> totally different. But uh, you do write about interesting stuff, and you do actually write about UFOs, which uh, I think in this interview we're gonna we're gonna focus primarily on the monster aspect, the cryptid aspect of this. And uh, I want to get a little bit into the fairy lore stuff too. Okay. uh, In Canada, because that's interesting as well. But like I said, this book is called Canadian monsters and mysteries. Mm -hmm. And the first question I have is what prompted you to write a book just specifically about monsters slash cryptids in Canada. So, um, just a little backstory there. Um, I actually moved to Canada in 2020. My spouse got a job at a university here. And uh, of course I was, I was regaling you with the tale of our, our yes. pandemic uh, pandemic move. Now um, she is Canadian, correct? Originally okay. from okay. Welland, Ontario. Yes. Gotcha. Gotcha. Um, so um you know, of course, you know, you move to a new place and you're getting your feet down and you're in the middle of a pandemic and you can't work anywhere. <laughs> and because uh, you're, you're still a, a guest in the country. Right. So what do you do? You do some research. Right. And I started thinking to myself, OK, well, you know, I've written, uh, you know, I had I launched Mysteries in the Mist after I got here. But um, I, I also was sitting and thinking to myself, well, God, you know, I mean, I wonder what kind of fun weirdness happens up here in Canada. I mean, there's bound to be something, right? So I started doing research. Um, 
just uh, as I told you earlier, this broad brush kind of looking at different things and seeing, you know, maybe what I could shape a book out of. And I quickly realized that there was so much stuff that I was going to have to really limit the, uh, uh, the scope of the book. Um, Cause you know, for instance, we want to talk about Sasquatch. Everybody loves Sasquatch, right? That's going to end up being a whole book of itself. Um, in fact, there's so much material accumulating right now, it may end up being more than one book. Um, you could do an entire book on hauntings in Ontario. <clears throat> and what I, just in Ontario, just the one province without going, you know, all throughout Canada. Um, so what I, what I was, uh, what I discovered was I was going to have to limit the scope of the book. Um, and so I, I wanted wanted to look at, you know, some of my favorite uh, monsters like, you know, dog man and stuff like that. Um, I wanted to see if there was anything unusual in Canada and boy, is there, um, <clears throat> you know, of course uh, there's always UFOs to consider and there's a considerable section on UFOs in the book. And there's also a great deal of fairy lore, which, uh, uh, you know, is particularly um, the case in, uh, Nova Scotia and right. um, um, Newfoundland, uh, which are on the Atlantic coast, Atlantic provinces. So uh, just those things and lake monsters, of course, uh, Canada's, I got to think that Canada's got one of the highest percentage of lake monsters in the world. Yeah. From I reading mean, the book, they it, are, seems, it seems very much like that, that there's a lot. They are. <laughs> Yeah, they are all the way from the West Coast, all the way across to the East Coast. Every single province that I looked in had some kind of a lake monster story. Um, so there's a good bit of, of lake monster lore for those who like their, their cryptids, you know, swimming. Um, but, you know, again, as I said, it really was I had to narrow the scope of the book. And these are the kinds of the things that I chose to do. But there's lots of it. <laughs> Yeah, absolutely. And it's, there's definitely, you cover a lot of bases in this and I can definitely see how Sasquatch would have been probably taken over the whole book. So you're working now on a, uh, or doing the research for a, another book of just purely about Canadian Sasquatch Bigfoot. Yeah. That that book is, is due to the publisher in December. Um, and it, the working title right now is Beyond BC, because when everybody thinks of Sasquatch, they think, oh, oh, yeah, yeah, British Columbia, everything happens in British Columbia. But what people don't realize is that Canada has vast, and I mean vast, this is the second largest country in the world, right? right. Vast swaths of wilderness um, stretching from one side of the, the, the country to the other. And, and there are um, Sasquatch reports in just, just about every province, um, particularly in places like Manitoba, Alberta, Ontario. Um, there's just huge numbers of, of sightings. Um, and people, for the most part, don't know that. Because if you go and you go and you look through... Um, you know, the standard cryptozoology texts that most of us think of. Um, you might find a Canadian sighting here, Canadian sighting there. Um, everybody seems to be enamored of Yellowtop up in the Cobalt area of Ontario. For some reason, that one seems to make it into a lot of, of Sasquatch books. Um, but there's this, <laughs> there's this huge uh, 
um, pool of witnesses um, here in, in Canada that, uh, you know, their stories don't really get told, um, you know, unless they happen to be on one of the podcasts or something like that. So um, I want to get into that. I'm still in the process of researching. I'm still in the process of narrowing down my scope. Um, I'm not sure that I'm going to be able to write about, you know, maybe two, three provinces uh, for this, this particular book. So I'm, I'm trying to figure out which ones I want to do this time. Uh, but I'm accumulating data all throughout the, the, the country. And it's, it's fascinating stuff. Yeah. Wow. I, need a, I need to have a whole, whole chapter titled, Why Did the Bigfoot Cross the Road? <laughs> <laughs> well, it seems like um, you might be able to get you know, more than one book out of that, out of, out of that material. Yeah, it's entirely possible. Yeah. Um, because I'm I'm just uh, maybe a month into the research for this, so it's still new, and I've got a pile of stuff already. I probably could sit down and write a book right now, um, but I, I want to get a little bit more in depth here. So well, let's let's talk a little bit about the kind of the way you structure the book is like really simple stuff all the way down to the more fantastical, mm-hmm. and you start off with something like animals that don't belong. <laughs> animals that you would not see that are native to Canada, which obviously is a phenomenon right. in the United States yeah. as well. But, um, you know, what are some of those that you found particularly interesting as you were going through the process of writing this book that you found like, well, that's really just kind of baffling. Oh, there's, there's all kinds of just weird animal sightings up here. Um, there have been reports of kangaroos in Newfoundland. Mm-hmm. Um there was a report of a, of a, of an African lion um, actually being seen here in Ontario. And of course you have the ubiquitous, um, uh, they call them ABCs, you know, alien big cats in, in Britain, uh, the right. black pant, what people call black Panthers here uh, or in the States. Uh, I don't even know what they call them up here, <laughs> but um you know, and those range from the very interesting, you know, oh, look, there's a large black cat and it's wandering through the woods out back of my place or whatever to uh, the individual. And I can't remember what province this happened in. It seems like it was in the Atlantic provinces somewhere. Uh, fellow's walking home uh, one night. Uh, got his, he's been out cutting wood. He's got his ax with him. And uh He's walking down a path and he hears this bizarre noise, right? Um, turns and uh, discovers this black panther-like creature following him, right? Um, so he picks up his pe- pace a little bit and uh, this thing comes for him. And as it comes for him, allegedly it stands up on it two feet and comes at him swinging paws, right? Like, like it's trying to gouge him. So he fights this thing off with his ax, runs for it. It it goes back into the bush. He runs for it, gets a little ways down the road. The thing comes after him again, two feet, you know, batting its paws at him and so forth. He fights it off with his ax again. So this happens three times on the way home. Yeah. So you got a, a black panther that's bipedal that's chasing this fellow. Mm-hmm. <laughs> mm-hmm. So, you know, we can get into the whole, you know, okay, this is really weird. I mean, I make a kind of facetious comment in the book that maybe the, the, 
the alien big cats are trying to get into the man wolf business, you know, because the whole bipedal canid thing has been been all the rage since Linda Godfrey popped the beast of Bray Road, right? Yeah, we're going to talk um, about. We're definitely going to talk about that, um, but for sure. So, so we're talking. So, as far as as aliens that don't or uh, aliens. <laughs> See, well, they I've are got, they are they are aliens I mean, they're aliens you know if they're yeah because they, they don't native, yeah right yeah so um you know you get uh, like i said you get all these different just strange you know kangaroos where does it you know one of the people that reported seeing a kangaroo was actually a police officer here in the toronto area mm-hmm. um yeah now I, I don't know how many police officers you know but i've known quite a few in my lifetime um because uh, of work that I've done. Um, <laughs> there is no way that any officer anywhere is going to get on the radio and tell his dispatcher that he's looking at a kangaroo unless he's looking at a kangaroo. Because you know this guy caught all kinds of crap from his colleagues when he got back to the station. Yeah. But sure enough, this guy's reporting seeing kangaroo. Yeah, you know, and of course they go through the whole thing that nothing was found. You know, the zoo wasn't missing any animals or any of that kind of stuff. There's kangaroo bouncing around somewhere. Now, where did it come from? Um, I mean, I suppose it could be an escapee from a, you know some exotic animal collector, but they have pretty strict regulations on that stuff here. Um, so, you know, again, it's a mystery. This is why we do this stuff because there's mysteries and we just love them right <laughs> right yeah i mean the kangaroo stuff is weird i mean that's uh, jerome clark writes about that in mm-hmm. his yeah. in his famous like, kind of unexplained book um yep. and there's even you know there's there's i think there's even a picture that he publishes in that i don't i think that's in the united states but um, I, yeah, I didn't run across that um i know uh, one of at least one of my kangaroo reports came from lauren coleman so yeah yeah he may have well, been he a cites, serious american yeah, yeah he cites yeah. coleman a lot in that book many different yeah. things so that wouldn't be surprising but um yeah i mean that's that is strange and um i and also too i mean you know it gets i mean canada's a pretty cold country and as far as mm-hmm. i know you know where kangaroos live it doesn't get that cold so i don't know how they would mm-hmm. you know i mean it, big cats uh, I could see. I Maybe, mean, they could be, yeah. be pretty resourceful, you know, and then they could probably survive uh, a Canadian winter. I mean, I, you guys do have, I mean, are there mountain lions? I mean, I'm sure there's mountain lions in the there West are. Canada. Yeah. Uh, what I was, uh, one of the things that, that reminds me, um, thanks for saying that. Um, one of the interesting things that popped up in, in my research about big cats is that the uh, Department of Natural Resources, I think it's called, um, but I could be wrong, here in Ontario, um, did an extensive survey um, trying to determine whether or not um, there were mountain lions in Ontario. Um, and they released this humongous report that, you know, included witness testimony and, you know, scat evidence and all this other stuff, basically saying, well, yes, there, there are actually mountain lions in Ontario. Um, because, you know, there was the fear that, uh, that those critters had gone extinct from overhunting and all that sort of thing. The interesting thing about this, though, is that in the course of this, this um, report, 
there's a, a basically a footnote that says that you know during the time period that we were doing this report, we spoke to X number of credible witnesses who stated that they had seen black mountain lions. Um, and you know, and then it goes on, just you know, you know, yeah. yeah. People saw black mountain lions, you know, like 50 people or something reported black mountain lions. Now, your zoologists will tell you there is no such thing, that mountain lions are not melanistic. They do not come in black. Um, so what were people seeing? Um, there is such a thing as a black jaguar, but what would a jaguar be doing up in Ontario? That's way out of their range. I can believe it, you know, in Texas or in uh, sure. you know, some of the southern states or whatever. Uh, they could have come up from Mexico. It's possible. Um, you know, they're known to migrate or, or, or you know, move around. But Canada, um, uh, the only way that I could think of that a black jaguar could possibly make it up here would be if they came up the Mississippi Valley. <laughs> um, and there's a lot of, of land and a lot of farmers with guns and stuff in between there and Canada. So um, I just, yeah. I, I can't explain that one. It's unusual and out of place and it doesn't make much sense. And uh, one thing about the mountain lions is just like, just, just as an aside, I mean, here in the Eastern part of Tennessee, the Smoky mm -hmm. mountains, that area Appalachians, <clears throat> there are mountain lions. Yes. Um, but they're not supposed to be where I am in the middle part of Tennessee, where Nashville is, mm -hmm. but there are, but they are. Yeah. So because, because uh, cats like to roam and that's, mm -hmm. that's, that's pretty much the definition of a cat. Yeah. And, you know, you have that same situation if, you know, from what I've read, uh, you know, and, and, and heard from, from people in Pennsylvania, you know, they're, they're, whatever DNR or whatever is, you know, adamant that there are no, you know, there's no natural breeding population of mountain lions in Pennsylvania. And anybody who hunts there will tell you that's just a load of crap. Um, yeah. It's whether they're being lazy about it, whether they don't want to, you know, uh, worry about, you know, protected species existing in their forests or, you know, whatever. Uh, there's, there's reasons why the government might fib about finding mountain lions. Um, but they do. Right. Let's the, so let's, let's talk a little bit about also like, kind of like these, these unknowns that um, not, these are not just animals that don't belong, but these are just like inexplicable animals. And you, you, you divide this into uh, cold-blooded unknowns, which obviously we're talking about amphibians, reptiles mm -hmm. and warm-blooded unknowns. Um, yeah. This is stuff that's, you know, pretty much stuff that's of unusual size. And uh, one of the examples that I picked out for the cold-blooded was like these giant snakes. And then and yep. this, this is bizarre too, because much like the jaguar that lives in a tropical climate, essentially, or a subtropical climate, giant snakes, you know, I mean, here in the United States, like uh, pythons, boa, large boas. I mean, mm -hmm. those, you, we can account where those come from. They're invasive now, especially right. in Florida. But like up right. there in Canada, that's it again. You know, I don't, yeah, I, I'm not seeing it, you know. Mm -hmm. So, you know, not only do we have 
these sort of cryptid creatures like the giant snakes and stuff, which I'll get back to in a minute. But there's also a a whole section in the book about um, creatures that aren't supposed to exist uh, still that, that are supposed to be extinct. Um, and, you know, there have been reports from Canada, for instance, of people tracking, uh, uh, you know, what the, the native people claimed was actually a woolly mammoth uh, up in the, the Arctic areas of, of Canada. And there's uh, some interesting reports from also from that area, which is really bizarre, like Northwest Territories, which is not a hospitable place for any kind of a reptile, right? It's also a report of actual living dinosaurs up there. Um, something called a Ceratosaurus, I think it was called. Uh, hunting party encountered this monstrous beast wandering around out on the tundra. It scared some, some moose away from them, right? Um, so there are stories about that in the book. But uh, my favorite things uh, that I discovered when I was doing this research, there's a, um, a gentleman named John Worms, uh, which who people may or may not have heard of. Um, he's a Canadian fellow, lives in Manitoba. Um, I, you know, I honestly don't know if he's still alive or not. Um, but he wrote a book in the early 2000s called Strange Creatures Seldom Seen. Um, not something you can find on Amazon. Um, I found it on uh Basically, there's a, a website that sells, you know, you can get a PDF copy of it, or um, I think there's another format that they sell it in. I think you need an EPUB version that you can put on your Kindle or whatever. Um, it's worth every penny because there are some fantastic stories in this book. Um, and Worms got involved in his research because he was trying to solve the mysteries of these big holes people were finding um, out in the Canadian wilderness. Now, he apparently had uh, an in with the First Nations people in Manitoba, because a lot of the witnesses in this book are First Nations people, uh, which adds to the credibility for me, because, you know, I mean, these are people who hunt and fish, uh, not just, you know, for a living, not for, for capital gain, but to, for survival. You know, they, so they know the animals and, and the birds and, and so forth that exist in their area. And they know things that don't exist in their area. So uh, Worms was trying to solve the mystery of these giant holes, right? There's these big holes about three feet in diameter, smooth sided, looked like something had bored right through there, right? Um, he'd consulted with geologists and they told him that it wasn't a natural formation. And he did all these, uh, did all this research trying to figure out what these things were. Finally, he asked some of his first nations friends, well, were, were, you know, anything about these halls? Like, oh yeah. The giant snakes live in there. Hmm. <laughs> He's like, what? <laughs> oh yeah. We have these great big snakes up here. He's like, now, Worms points out that if you talk to a, you know, a mainstream herpetologist, a guy who does snakes, right, mm -hmm. that they will tell you that there's no snake species in Canada that's longer than, say, three or four feet long, right? And that's a big right. snake up here. Right. Um, <clears throat> and the natives are like, nah, nah, nah. We have these great big snakes that live up here. It's like, and so he, he started collecting stories of these giant snakes, right? Um, and, and, 
he was collecting stories from people who had, you know, been close enough to these things to shoot at them, you know, and, and, and who had uh, run into them in, in boats that, you know, that one of the things that you see very frequently with these things is they live close to water um, and they do swim. Um, so there may be some crossover between the giant snakes and the whole lake monster thing too. But so, you know, he's getting reports of, you know, snakes that are 20, 30, 40 feet long. And in Canada, that is impossible, yeah. according to mainstream science. You know, I mean, We're talking tell- stuff that's like from the Amazon. I mean, that's what yeah, you yeah, mean. yeah. And, and some of that's even like pushing it for as like as long as snakes can get there. Yeah. So, you know, I mean, some of the snakes that are being described to worms, you know, would fall firmly into the whole Titanoboa uh, category that that people were thinking about, uh, you know, explaining some of these really giant supposed reptiles in in the Amazon. Right now, you know, the Amazonians obviously have anacondas, which can get to be, you know, 30 feet or so. Uh, They're about 28, 30 feet, something like that. Um, But these native people are telling him straight faced, you know, uh, you know, there's these giant snakes and they live up here. And not the, the really weird part about it is not only are they describing a giant snake, but they're telling him that there's more than one species of these things. Yeah. That, you know, that there are, are, are giant snakes that look basically like giant garter snakes. You know, wow. Like, yeah. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, I've What's seen a garter that? snake. It's like, where the hell do you get a 20 foot long garter snake from? <laughs> you know, did it eat its Wheaties? Uh, uh, did it, you yeah. know, is it a, a, a radioactive mutation? I mean, what the heck? It sounds like something from the science fiction movie, and, right? And they're, and they're so, they're so blase about it. They're so just they're like, very, oh yeah, it's just, yeah, it's just yeah, these we got these exist. big snakes. So <laughs> here's the funny part about it. So they tell him, okay, there's a, uh, uh, there's these giant snakes and they live, you know, close to the water and, um, you know, they hibernate in those big holes that you're talking about. He's like, well, snakes don't really dig. He said, where'd the holes come from? Oh, the giant beavers dig them. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's like, wait, what? Um, yeah, yeah, we have, we have like really giant beavers up here. And he thought they were pulling his leg, right? But no, he has, you know, over a dozen witness accounts of people who've seen bear uh, 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 beavers the size of black bears or bigger. That's a big beaver. Now, in, in fact, he has a, a picture in the book of him. Somebody's you know, made a statue of one of these things, right? He's standing next to it kind of with his arms draped over his shoulder. It's, it's shoulder height to him. You know, th- and this thing is supposed to represent the actual size of one of these things. That, you know, native people are telling, oh, yeah, you go out to this area over here and you'll find beaver lodges that are the size of people's houses. He's like, seriously? Okay. Um, as it turns out, um, you know, I might have put this in the extinct, you know, animals area if I had, you know, if there was some evidence for this, but... Um, there was actually a species of giant beaver that was about that size that existed uh, something like 10,000 years ago. It's called Castorides ohioensis. Right. Yep. Um, but mm-hmm. it is, again, supposed to be extinct. <laughs> and these native people are telling him straight up, you know, not only have they seen these things, but they've actually trapped them, skinned them, and sold the pelts. 
you know that's a good um, haul that's a good haul that's you know? a heck of a haul um you just gotta find a, you just gotta fight a giant beaver but other yeah, than you, that, said, you gotta find a giant beaver so uh, i mean he, again he collects a number of tales of these giant beavers you know giant beavers going into the water and apparently these things not only eat uh, they're not just vegetarians they might eat fish too because there's one report where uh a native couple saw um, these one of these beavers go into the water, and as they did, all the fish in the in the area just kind of jumped out of the water. Right, <laughs> it was like like on a fountain, right, trying to get away from this thing. Um, so it's entirely possible they're supplementing their diet with fish. Um, something that big, I can believe it. They become more omnivorous, right? Um, so Worms was like, okay, I've got reports of giant snakes i've got reports of giant beavers up here in manitoba um he has a whole section on the the fairy lore in that area too which was really interesting but he's like yeah i'd really like to see one of these things so on a lark and and you have to wonder if he wasn't having a moment of intuition right on a lark he decides he's going to camp out uh next to a river uh, close to a place where somebody had had a, a recent sighting. And he's, you know, sitting there next to his fire. He's doing his thing. He's camping out. He doesn't really expect to see anything, right? You know, what are the chances? He does. He actually has a witness sighting of one of these giant beavers in the water. It's like six or seven feet long, head the size of a football. Um, he writes it up in, in the book and you know, it's like, I had to, you know, I had to kind of rethink what I thought about beavers after seeing this thing because it was humongous, right? Um, so, I, I mean, that the giant beavers thing, just it's just so Canadian. You know? that's, that's true. Yeah, that's um, true. You know, the, the, you know, I just really got a kick out of that. And, and you know, and, and the the people that tell these stories are people, like I said, who hunt and fish and trap, you know, to feed their families. You know, they know the wildlife in their area. You know, so if, if one of these people's tell, people tells me they've seen a giant snake or they've seen a giant beaver or whatever, I'm inclined to believe them. So you know, there's, there's it, two possibilities with these, these things. Is that maybe a population of this Castoroides ohioensis survived, right? Uh, or you're dealing with something that's a little more supernatural. Yeah. Now, the interesting thing about both the giant snakes and the giant beavers is that the the uh, the, the elders um, in, in the the First Nations tribes in that area, you know, are very firm with their people about um, not really talking about these things. Yeah, I, I, this it's amazing that Warm Scott as much witness testimony as he did. Um, not really talking about these things and leaving them alone. You know, the the you know the person who traps one or or shoots at one or whatever is the exception to the rule. Um, for the most part, you know, there's a, a story about these two um, uh, First Nations firefighters who come across one of these giant snakes um, as they're doing a, a brush clearing project. And one of them's like, hey, you know, we should, we should, you know, take this thing home with us, you know, and show it to people. And the other guy's like, ah, ah, ah we're not touching that thing. You just back away slowly and, and walk away. Um, they're just, it's, it's, 
So you get kind of the impression that the First Nations folks view these creatures as something more than just a natural animal. Um, but, you know, who knows? Uh, as you say, it's just as e it could just as easily be a relic population of these giant beavers from, you know, not too long ago. The giant snakes, phew, all bets are off on that one. Uh, yeah. There's there's absolutely no scientifically explainable reason why you'd have a snake that big up here in Canada. Here's one that was an interesting story from the book, uh, the water moose. Oh yeah, the underwater moose. Right. And don't ask me to don't ask me to pronounce that name. I have no idea how it's pronounced. Um, but there is, uh, according to again the native folks, this this also comes from strange creatures seldom seen. There is a species of moose that supposedly lives underwater, um, and it has a somewhat different um, look to it than um, uh, you know your normal moose that you think of when you, you think of Canada. You know, um, it's supposed to have more of a pot belly, a little bit shorter legs, and it has a, a, a pouch underneath its its uh, its throat that warms theorizes is kind of like its gill sac. And there are, uh, you know, uh, there's a good um, witness account of some people that um, uh, saw one of these things just pop up out of the water in the middle of the lake somewhere, which is not something moose do. You know, if they swim, they swim on the top of the water. They don't go diving, right? Um, this thing pops up in the middle of the lake and they're like, hey, we're out of meat. We should, uh, we should snag this dude and, and um, you know, we'll be set for, for the rest of the fishing season here. Um, so after some travail and uh, almost getting their, the, their, a hole punched in the side of their aluminum boat by the, the antlers on this thing, uh, they managed to drop a, um, a rope over the, the antlers. And, you know, uh, this sounds very inhumane, but apparently it's, it's fairly common for people to actually, if they don't have a gun or, you know, some other way to dispatch the moose to just drag it to death, right? Mm -hmm. uh, to drown it, um, to get the meat. Well, they're trying to drag this thing and it won't drown. Um, it, it took them quite some time before the moose finally succumbed. And then when they pulled it up onto land, it required significantly more people to get this thing onto the shore than it would have a regular moose. Um, they took pictures of it. And Worms includes some pictures in, in the book. Um, and, you know, I mean, I'm not an expert on moose, um, but the thing looks strange to me. Um, and it, they testified that, uh, you know, when they, they butchered this thing and, and, you know, they were, they were able to survive on the meat for the rest of the season, um, you know, it tasted like moose meat to them. Um, I guess Worms got a, a sample of this and actually um, sent it to some people and, Basically, all anybody could tell him was that they thought maybe it was a hybrid with one of the Eurasian moose. Um, so it had some some sort of genetic anomalies to it. So was this thing, a, you know, some kind of a mutant um, or, you know, do you indeed have underwater moose in Canada? Wouldn't that be interesting? You go fishing and, you know, you drop your line in, you start to reel something in and it turns out to be a moose. Um that would give a, a whole new uh, slant on the, the idea of, of uh, you know, big game fishing, right? 
So, but yeah, I mean, again, the native people are very blase about these things. Oh yeah. They even have a name for it. You know, um, I forget what the name means. Moose that swims in the water or something like that. Um, very blase about it, but yeah, this thing definitely exists. And, and these folks that uh, were commercial fishermen pulled one of these things out of the water. So, um, you know, until somebody, you know, drops one, you know, in a, uh, at the, the local, the zoology, the uh, zoology or biology department of their, their local Canadian university, I guess we're still going to be, you know, uh, wondering about the mystery of that thing. <laughs> yeah, it's um, it, it's it's possible it could be some kind of weird subspecies of moose that mm. just likes to live underwater. And uh, moose are really big, though. I would just think it would be so noticeable and just. Yeah, I mean the the moose is the second largest land animal in in uh, North America after the bison. Yeah. Um, which weighs more than a moose, but isn't nearly as tall as a moose. Right, right. Um, people die in Canada every year from hitting moose because they'll take the top right off your car because of how oh, tall they stand. Boy. Have you um, ever have you seen one up there? I have not seen one yet. I have not. Um, I'm hoping to get up to the Algonquin region. There's a provincial park north of me that. Uh, you know, wolves, moose, loons, and all that kind of stuff. And it's not too far from here, actually. It's maybe an hour and a half, two hours from where I'm sitting right now. So, um, you know, you can get out into real deep wilderness real quick here. Yeah, yeah. Um, like we were talking about before, there's like 30 million people in Canada, and there's like most of them live 100 miles within the yeah. U.S. border. So, yeah. 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 Vast, the, the other interest- wilderness. Yeah, exactly. Um the other interesting thing too, speaking of bison, um, is, you know, everybody's like, you know, well, all of the, the areas of the, the world have been explored and there's nowhere for a Sasquatch to hide. Right. Um, that's not really true because, you know, we managed to lose a whole species of bison for several decades, <laughs> uh, in the early, early part of the 20th century that the, uh, the wood bison, which is a very large subspecies of the, the plains bison that everybody knows from the States. Right. Um, these guys are even a little bit bigger than the plains bison, right? The wood bison was declared extinct, uh, I forget what year that was in, but uh, it was declared extinct because of brucellosis and overhunting and so on and so forth. Mm. 1957, a, a Manitoba conservation officer is flying over the forest in a, a you know wilderness area, looks down out of his plane, and darn if there aren't 200 of those big boys running across the field underneath him. Um, as it turns out, Canada houses a population of about now about 10,000 wood bison. Uh, um, so they're, you know, it's, it's, it's an actual, they call them Lazarus species where, you know, you thought it was extinct, but it really isn't kind of like the coelacanth. So the wood bison is actually a Lazarus species that exists right here in Canada. And it's, you know, size is comparable to what people describe a Sasquatch being. So who knows who knows what's running around out in the forest here. that's true you know what's interesting is that in the eastern united states in the 18th century there were bison in the eastern u.s but they got hunted <laughs> out oh yeah very quickly yeah, yeah. and um 
there are actually here close to me at a place called land between the lakes it's, in, mm-hmm. it's this area between the cumberland river and the tennessee river yeah famous uh, they, for its dogman sightings yes yes it is uh, <laughs> the creature of the land between the lakes i know this story well <laughs> they're they're trying to reintroduce the buffalo back into the eastern united states how well it's going i don't know but they yeah they actually are uh, i've been there i think i was there in like june or july and the just the bison looked miserable they looked like they mm. were not having a good time just just too hot for them huh? <laughs> yeah so, so yeah yeah i mean the, the 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 bison obviously existed in the eastern u.s that part of the reason that the lakota um the people that most people know them as Sioux uh, native people ended up at, out on the Great Plains was they were following the buffalo as they made their exit out of uh, the eastern United States because um, their their primary food source you know up until uh, you know the the late 1800s their primary food source was was bison yep. so almost lost them completely uh, too mm-hmm. so. yeah yeah. But, uh, well, they tried to, to extinguish the bison population in hopes that they could extinguish the Indian populations as well. Right. Yeah. There's an unreal picture of just a mound of bison skulls oh, or yeah. bones and from that time period. Let's get into Dogman since we're, we've, we've mentioned him a little bit here. Um, mm-hmm. The whole idea of the Dogman, you've got this going on in Canada too. Uh, mm-hmm. This has become extraordinarily popular. In fact, like... And in about a month, there is a dogman conference taking place here in Tennessee. Yeah, I saw um, that. But uh, you start this little section off with the the, the loop guru. This uh, mm-hmm. this like um, the loop guru, yeah. loop guru. Yeah. yeah. Um, so let's talk a little bit about the loop guru, the mythology behind it, how it's yeah. similar to the dogman type. Yeah. So um, there were in Europe, of course. Uh, legends of the werewolf. Uh, and when you, it, but there were, you know, like regional variations of what the werewolf was all about, right? In Germany, you know, in places along that line, the, the werewolf was this, you know, this basically it was a demonically possessed person who, you know, was granted the power by Satan to change into a wolf. And, you know, it, it went around, you know, ravaging and pillaging wherever it went right the lugaru which is the french version of the werewolf was much more um much more genteel <laughs> um for one thing the french who of course are both on well i don't know about now modern day france and europe but the the french canadians are predominantly catholic roman catholic people um and the mythology of the lugaru was tied into uh, their faith. Um, so one became a Lugaru as a result of some kind of religious failing. You know, you weren't going to mass like you should. You didn't go to confession when you were supposed to, that sort of thing. Um, so, and the curse was not permanent. Um, you were fated to become a wolf for X number of nights um, and then the curse ended. Uh, 
I can't remember the number of 90, 90 days or something like that. I, I don't remember the exact number of days now. It might have been a half a year or something. Um, and, it, you know, there was nothing about the full moon or any of that silliness, right? Um, so these uh, Lugaru would become wolves at night, but they seem to maintain more of their human sensibilities than the German werewolf did. Um, so uh, attacks on humans were fairly rare, um, but they didn't do anybody's livestock any good, you know, because, you know, Lugaru's got to eat, right? There's an interesting little um, a story that comes from a CBC radio uh, documentary thing that, uh, that I picked up about a hunter in the 1800s who was actually a Lugaru, you know, he'd become a Lugaru, um, and his apprentice. And, uh, you know, he was worried that he was going to hurt his apprentice and he was trying to get this boy to leave. Um, but he'd been, the boy had been given some protection against the Lugaru and he decided he was going to trust in this, right? Um, the other interesting thing about the, the Lugaru mythos is that if you uh, draw blood from this wolf and say its name, the name that its human name, then the curse is broken. Mm. Um, so this is precisely what happens in the story. You know, this young, this Lugaru, you know, is overcome by his ravenous sensibilities and comes on this young man who's wearing his protection that, that he's been given by the Lugaru. Um, and the young man manages to prick him with a knife and say his name and, and breaks the curse. But the interesting part about that, that whole curse breaking thing is that the curse only remains broken as long as neither the Lugaru or the person that saved them ever says anything about it. If either one of them tells the story, then the curse is reinstated and, and the individual becomes a Lugaru again. <laughs> so uh, it's, a, it's an interesting, very weird uh, sort of regional variance that, uh, you know, now I've researched werewolves in Germany and so forth pretty extensively for some fiction work and stuff that I've done, never ran across anything like that story before. Uh, so uh, it's, it's interesting that, that you would have that, um, that sort of, uh, you know, off switch. And then, you know, this strange on switch again. Um, but to demonstrate that the Lugaru, you know, might, actually have a heart um, there's a story of a of a, of a Cree man who uh, was trapped out um, in a bad storm in the winter time and you know was very concerned that he was going to freeze to death um, and this giant black wolf materializes out of the snow and he's he figures well I guess better to get eaten by a wolf than freeze to death um, but the wolf comes and lays down next to him and keeps him warm um, and then uh, <clears throat> And then actually uh, guides him to a human settlement uh, after the, the weather clears a bit. She reminded me very much of some of the Phantom Black Dog stories that I ran across when I was doing research in that area. Um, it was just, it was interesting. He's, he, he makes a point, this, this fellow makes a point of, of talking about how this creature's eyes glowed and that's how he knew it was a supernatural being, uh, which, you know, that's kind of one of the, uh, Tim Renner signs of the paranormal, you know, glowing eyes, self, self illuminating eyes. It's a hallmark of it. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So, um, 
you know, there's that story. There's uh, another somewhat scarier story of, uh, you know, fellow who's, uh, again, this is in the 1800s, who, you know, lived on his own out. And, you know, he was a was basically, a, what do you call that? Um, he was basically a squatter. He had uh, occupied a particular section of land and he had started working it and so forth. And that was kind of how you got your land back in that particular time period. Um, He's also a very devout fellow, right? Another another very devout Roman Catholic fellow. And um, I'm trying to think if it was the, the, the mail sled or something. It was the dead of winter again. Um, somebody comes by his cabin and mentions that his neighbor down the road, which is like several miles away, uh, is on the point of, of, of passing away. And, um, you know, this fellow being... Again, a very devout Roman Catholic, and knowing that there's no priest within, you know, probably 100 miles, uh, grabs his prayer book and jumps in his sled and, you know, takes off to, to you know, go uh, at least hear this fellow's last words and, and, you know, say a blessing over him before he dies, right? He's riding along his sled and this, this giant black wolf again uh, comes bolting out of the forest and, and gives chase. And, uh, you know, of course, there's this religious overtone to the story with the fellow praying desperately to, to make it to his, his uh, neighbor's home. And, you know, he, he basically outruns this wolf in his sled, which eh, <laughs> that's not likely to happen, right? Um, you know, it's a single horse drawn sled. Uh, he gets to the, the neighbor's house. He uh, runs in, in the door and he, he props his prayer book on the, uh, on the table, uh, blocking doorway. And, and so of course the Lou can't get in. Right. Um, and he does what he says he's going to do. He comes in, he hears this fellow's last words basically and says prayers over him and all that sort of thing. It's, you know, it's not the last rites that Roman Catholic would prefer, but it's better than nothing. Um, and the fellow passes on, um, and by the time all this happens, this blue guru has, has disappeared. But again, you get the whole, you know, we know it's a supernatural creature because its eyes glow. Um, so, you know, the blue guru has kind of a spotty reputation, but it's not nearly as bloodthirsty as the, uh, as the Ger Germanic werewolf. Um, so uh, there, there are some stories in the book about, about uh, the blue guru and, and the mythology there. What's the easiest choice you can make? Window instead of middle seat? Picking a vendor who sends a great gift basket? Outsourcing business tasks you hate? What about selling with Shopify? Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage? Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash try. Go to shopify.com slash try now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash try.
When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. So we have this concept, um, this myth, really like kind of like a folklore with the Lugaroo. Mm-hmm. And of course, you have the French settlement in Canada, the, the Quebec. Uh, you've also got the, the Mati people that are in, I think, Manitoba, Saskatchewan. Mati, yeah. Mm-hmm. That they're, they're kind of a mixed native or First Nations, as you call them up there, and um, descendants of French like the trappers and that, that whole thing. Mm-hmm. So you've got a lot of this kind of like that French cultural influence. Oh yeah. Um, and then you've got a lot of these kind of encounters, the dog man stuff in which you've got the same kind of French cultural influence in Frank in um, Michigan and Wisconsin as well. Absolutely. Yeah. So do you think that there's a connection to some of this cultural influence and these sightings? That's tough to say, you know, I, I mean, I think that it's certainly, it, that goes back to, you know, what are these things, right. you know, whether you call it man wolf, whether you call it a dog man, whether you call it a werewolf, you know, whatever you call it, you come back to that question, you know, what is this thing? Now, is it a, uh, you know, I mean, and there are as many theories about that as there are people that research the subject, ranging from, you know, a supernatural guardian that was put in place to, to guard burial mounds of native peoples in, you know, the United States to, you know, a, uh, a, a, a mutant uh, wolf that evolved to, uh, to, to walk on two feet and, and maybe develop more superior intelligence. I mean, the, the theories about what these things are, you know, there's a wide continuum of belief. Now, if we go with a more uh, supernatural or psi kind of explanation for these critters, um, then certainly you have a situation where you have a group of people, you know, because if you if you want to form a thought form, you have to have will, desire, and imagination, right? You have a group of people that um, have a particular being that produces fear in them. So you have the energy to, to power this thing, a very clear idea of what this thing looks like. And uh, you know, and, and again, that, that fear energy that, that, you know, this or energy of awe, whatever it is that goes into this creature, so that it may be that uh, in some way that those thoughts, that, that acculturation um, is actually creating a, a form of some type. Now, whether these things are actually physically solid and there or not remains to be seen for the most part. But, you know, it could be that, that some people are having, you know, spontaneous psychic experiences that are bought on by this kind of, um, if you want to call it an egregore or a, uh, a group soul kind of experience of this, this creature. 
Um, I hesitate to say that that's true uh, because most of the, the Lou Guru stories that I, I ran across were of people who actually turned into wolves. Um, you know, and you could distinguish sure. the wolf by the fact that its eyes glowed. It didn't turn into a bipedal, upright, walking around, uh, uh, you know, walking around on two legs wolf. Yeah, it's not your classic um, werewolf kind of thing so, that you see in the yeah. movies now. Right, 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 right. Yeah, right. everybody knows this thing now because, mm. you know, you see them in movies and, and all this stuff all the time, right? You know, it's like, it's a thing. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Yeah. So I think there, there, there must be something more, something deeper, more mysterious to a lot of these sightings. Now, some of the sightings that you run across are of, you know, just a really gigundous uh, quadrupedal uh, wolf creature that people just don't have the feeling is a natural wolf. But some of the sightings, most of the sightings, the distinguishing characteristic of this thing is that it is bipedal or it becomes bipedal. Um, there's a couple of stories in the book where people have gone hiking. They're out in the Canadian wilderness. Um, in one case, the, the folks were, were armed. In fact, both cases, the folks were armed. And this, this large wolf appears to these people, which freaks them out bad enough and then as they're watching this thing stands up on its hind legs um, which of course really freaks them out in one case a uh, fellow you know fired off a shotgun and the the creature looked at him like you know that's not going to hurt me right hmm. um, in another case a uh, fellow you know was carrying a 22 rifle with him and put three rounds in this thing's chest and it didn't even blink um, you know, it just made savage noises at him. The interesting thing about both of those stories, if I'm, if I'm recalling my stories correctly, is that what got rid of this thing was somebody getting a camera out. <laughs> right. You know, as, as soon as they yeah. tried to get a camera out to take a picture of it, it disappeared back into the woods. And in one case, the woman uh, had a very clear psychic impression that if she tried to take a picture of this creature, it was going to kill her and her husband both. Um, so it's something in my mind, much stranger, even than, you know, some kind of a thought form from, you know, French culture, you know, coming to life. Um, these things are, are, you know, one of the things that distinguishes the, the dog man, man wolf from like a Sasquatch for the most part is the aggressiveness of these guys. They don't care if you see them, <laughs> you know, they have a bad attitude <laughs> and, yeah. uh, and they're, and they're not afraid to, to show it. Um, Linda Godfrey has a story that comes out of Quebec that, uh, you know, the fellow claims that, uh, he doesn't think the creature intended to harm him, but as it went by, uh, it's, it's, uh, you know, he, he was again, hiking in a, in a wilderness area encountered one of these creatures and it was, it dropped down on all fours and, and went speeding by him and apparently snagged his hip, uh, on its teeth as it went by it gave him a very sizable laceration according to, you know, she had trouble mm. getting hold of him after his initial report. So, 
kind of hard to know how much stock to place in the story, but according to him, he got quite a number of stitches. He told the the local paramedics he'd been attacked by a bear. Um, but, you know, again, it's, it's like with the Sasquatch thing where people say, but I know that wasn't a bear. <laughs> yeah. <clears throat> so, uh, yeah, but that's in, in all of Godfrey's um, research, that's the only, only story that she had where somebody was actually injured by one of these things. Now they've scared the bejeebies out of who knows how many people, but um, they seem to be pretty territorial. Uh, you know, they tend to be, seem to be given to like a bluff charge where they'll, they'll come at you to try to scare you off their territory. Um, yeah. And most people are quite happy to oblige them by running like crazy. <laughs> <laughs> which actually, if you, you know, we're talking about a real predator, they'd probably run you down and eat you. But, and that's one of the things that Timothy Renner likes to point out with the dog man stuff mm-hmm. is that you have Bigfoot and Bigfoot is weird enough. There's a lot of weirdness mm-hmm. around Bigfoot, but oh, yeah. Bigfoot is not anatomically impossible. Bigfoot is very much like us. He has two arms, two legs. He's a mm-hmm. primate, you know, he's, he's, He's a possible being, okay? You don't have to stretch your belief too much to say, well, Bigfoot could be out there. Yeah. But with the dog man stuff, you've got this upright canine that's walking on these little legs, and it almost does seem anatomically impossible that this creature right. could actually exist. Yeah, yeah. You, you have descriptions from the witnesses of these things having, you know, walking around bipedally on legs like a dog. Right now, you know, it's possible for a dog to get up on its back legs and, you know, they do the cute little dance thing and stuff. Right. I mean, my small dog does that sometimes. Yeah. Yeah. But they can't Um, sustain it, but they can't, no, they can't walk for any length of time on, on those legs like that. And they sure as heck can't run. And people describe these things as moving quickly through the woods on two legs. uh, On two legs. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and then, you know, being able to drop into four, four wheel drive and then really take off. Right. It's, it's in anatomically, it's just not, it's not tenable, you know, and then you add in all of the weirdness with things like the, uh, the newboid type, uh, dog people that appear in people's bedrooms and stuff. And you're like, wait yeah, a minute, yeah. what, <laughs> how did materialize, that happen? materialize yeah. and then dematerialize. Yeah. Yeah, and, it's like it's there one minute and the next minute it's gone. Then you start getting into more almost the phantom black dog apparitional type type being, right? Yeah. And, and yeah, so it's just, uh, you know, it's another another great mystery that, you know, I don't think anybody's ever going to drag a dog man in and, you know, plop it on a, a table in their basement and give it up to science, you know. Uh, it's just, uh, I think there's something far, far stranger going on there. I've got a couple of stories in the book, a chapter called The Headless Valley. Um, this ah, is yes. related to the, the Wahila, to dog yes. man. Yeah. Yeah. So one of the cool things about doing research is that you find out that stories that you have read in passing about places or, or events may not be necessarily the way everybody thinks they are now in the headless valley in the honey valley it's up in the northwest territories a very isolated spot um, is one of those things it's one of those uh one of those stories that has kind of gotten 
confabulated so that, you know, the, the, the myth out there right now, if you go on the website and you look up Headless Valley or Nahani or go on the, the web and look up Headless Valley and Nahani Valley, any of that kind of stuff, um, you know, you'll get this story about the giant wolves and they're eating people's heads off and stuff, right? And that's not necessarily true. In fact, it's probably not true. A guy named Pierre Berton wrote a book um, in the, the early part of the, the 20th century, uh, The Mysterious North. Uh, I'm thinking that's the name of it. It's, it's in the bibliography of my book. <laughs> but, um, so the Nahani Valley had acquired this reputation in, you know, sort of the yellow journalism of the time as sort of the Shangri-La of the North, right? It's like, it was supposed to be like this tropical valley where, you know, ancient civilizations, carvings, it's, you know, it's kind of like uh, one of those, uh, you know, journey to the center of the earth kind of things, right? From Jules Verne, um, you know, with its, its, you know, its native queen and, and all of this stuff, right? Um, so Bertrand decided that he was going to get somebody to fly him into this valley. Um, and immediately the native people and, and, you know, anybody who'd been there, who'd trapped there, who'd hunted there, anybody who's, who'd spent any time in this, this valley told him, that's a really bad idea. You don't want to do that. Um, he persevered. Um, and he uh, actually got a pilot to fly him into the valley. And he gives this wonderful uh sort of spooky description of the place with its constant wind blowing through the valley and so forth. Um, but what he points out is, or, or what he says when he wrote this book in the, in the, in the, the thirties, I believe thirties or forties, something along that line. What he says is that, uh, yes, uh, these prospectors who'd gone into the valley, um, had, uh, had, had turned up, without their heads. Um, and he said that the, the First Nations people in that area had told him that there were a tribe of people mm -hmm. that lived in the valley that were taking these folks' heads. Um, now, flash forward a couple of three decades to Ivan Sanderson. Um, who is a you know, renowned cryptozoologist, very famous for his work on uh, the Yeti or the Abominable Snowman, and you know, many other <clears throat> mysterious things. He was, he was quite the, the, uh, the writer himself. Um, Sanderson tells a story of meeting a fellow who was a, a diesel mechanic or something, who uh, went on a hunting expedition into this valley with a native guide. And he... Uh, his his uh, his guide went into a, a copse of trees to see if he could flush some game out, and uh, this fellow Frank, I think his name was Frank, but don't quote me on that. This fellow is standing there with his big old shotgun, waiting for something to come out, and something does come out. It is a humongous white wolf, bigger than anything he's ever seen before. Uh, you know, from, from a wolf species. And he's, you know, he's been hunting in, in you know, Canada for, for years and years. Um, he unloads on this thing with his shotgun full of, uh, you know, 
of bird shot and heavy shot and so forth. And, you know, as with the, uh, the giant wolf thing at Skinwalker Ranch, it just kind of blinks at him and runs off, right? So his, his friend, his guide comes out and he asks what he was shooting at. And he tells him and he's like, oh, he gets real quiet. Um, and it takes a while before he finally tells, uh, tells this fellow, you know, that that wasn't a wolf. That was the Wahila. Um, and, uh, you know, it's, uh, it's different. It's, you know, it's, it's a giant wolf that, that roams the tundra up here. and It scavenges. It, avo- it avoids regular wolves. And uh, it spends a lot of time scavenging their kills and, and stuff like that. Now, somehow, this story gets confabulated with the, 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 the Nahani Valley, and this giant wolf is, is the, uh, becomes the, uh, the bad guy in the story, the, the thing that's taking these people's heads, when, in fact, the, the native people of the area said that there was a tribe of people who were doing this. Now, whether these people were people, people like human people, like Homo sapiens, or whether they were something else, is a subject of conjecture. But the native people in that area did not equate whatever casualties there were in that area with the great wolves. Um, so that's, I spend a little time talking about that in the book because that's one of those things, again, like I said, if you go on online and you look up the Nahani Valley, you'll see that story all over the place. Oh yes, there's these fierce wolves and they're taking people's heads and blah, blah, blah. You know, it's like, nah, probably not. You know, because first of all, you know, a, a very large predator like that, if it's gonna take the trouble to attack you and kill you, it's gonna eat you. You know, it's not just gonna snip your head off and then go on and leave your body laying there. It's going to eat you. Um, or at least eat the good bits. Right? So, <laughs> you know, livers and, you know, the fatty, rich, you know, nutrient dense uh, 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 parts of our bodies, right? Um, It's not just going to snip your head off and then walk away. You know, the same with any kind of predator, whether you're talking about bears or wolves or mountain lions or whatever, you know, they don't just kill things and, you know, snip their heads off and leave them laying there. Um, They they eat them because that's the whole purpose of, of of the hunt, right? So, you know, um, the, the Wahila gets a bad reputation. Um, and, you know, the existence of this creature is kind of a little doubtful because we only really have that one story of the Wahila. It's not until we um, descend uh, south of the border into, uh, you know, Linda Godfrey country again, into the Wisconsin, Minnesota area that we come across another critter that she documents that she called a bear wolf, um, which is, again, this enormous wolf-like creature that appears uh, sometimes on roadside. There's one really great story. This poor fella <laughs> talking about having a bad night. His wife's, wife's in labor. Um, he's trying to get her to the hospital. It's snowing like crazy. Um, and, uh, as he's driving along in his car, this huge, uh, I think it was white. I, I think this one was actually white. I, I could be mistaken. This huge white creature that looks like a, a giant wolf with kind of stubby legs 
comes up and runs along the side of the road next to him. And his impression is that the thing is trying to nudge his car with the shoulder. You know, maybe it was hoping to get a free snack. <laughs> so uh, as it turns out, you know, the, the, the beast, whatever it was, you know, runs into his car and, and ends up, you know, getting kind of tangled with the car and, and bounces off of it, and rolls off into the snow, and he drives on his way as quickly as he can in the snow. Um, but uh, Godfrey, you know, theorizes that, uh, you know, the things that, that kind of from the, the historical record that these critters could be are either dire wolves um, or, uh, which was, you know, again, one of those creatures that existed not too long ago um, or something that called something called an amphicyon, which seems to be the best candidate that which existed some millions of years ago, but still, you know, um, you know, I, I have trouble believing that there's a breeding population of, of these giant, you know, bear wolves or whatever you want to call them running around out there that nobody's discovered. You know, it, when I read stories like this, I, I almost wonder sometimes, did you ever see the BBC, BBC show Primeval? Uh, no, but I'm familiar with what you're talking about. Yeah, so in this show, um, they have what they call anomalies. We might call them portals or windows or whatever. And, you know, prehistoric creatures come through these anomalies, or sometimes creatures from the future come through these anomalies. And, you know, of course, they wreak havoc. And this team's whole job is to get these things back into the anomalies and seal the anomalies, right? I have to wonder sometimes if something like that doesn't happen, where something from the past ends up in our timeline for a short period of time and then maybe goes back. Right. The dire wolves, it's very similar also to the giant beaver stuff too. I mean, is, oh, that, yeah. is that what's going on? Both of them are not supposed to be here. You know, yeah. they were here geologically speaking, not too long ago. Well, yeah, yeah. I mean, even something like the Amphicyon, which is probably my best candidate for the bear wolf because it's massive, you know, and it, it's, it, it looks like what, you visualize when they're describing these creatures to you, right? Right. Even something like that only existed maybe 10 million years ago. That's a blink of an eye in geological terms. You know, so uh, I'm, I, I have to wonder, you know, I, we know that, um, you know, that there are alternate dimensions, um, you know, who's to say in time, Time is a is a construct that we use. Who's to say that time doesn't get bollocked up periodically? And, you know, dump something that's not supposed to be in our time stream on us. Yeah, uh, you know, that's as good an explanation to me as as oh yes, it's a relic population of a creature that's supposed to have died out ten million years ago. Sure, could be. You could be right, <laughs> but you know, there could be something else even weirder going on too. As we kind of wind down here, let's talk a little bit about some of the more bizarre stuff. Not that any of this isn't bizarre, but more bizarre. Uh, no, I think giant white wolves running around the tundra of Canada is pretty bizarre. <laughs> <laughs> but this one's really bizarre. Mere folk, mermaids, mere men. So you, yeah. you actually have a chapter about this there. in the book. Yep. 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 And, and here is my counsel to you. If you ever run into a mermaid, or a mer-man, or a mer-being, mer-person, whatever you want to call them. Um, don't mess with them. 
Okay. Um, I've heard that perfectly. Before, yes. <laughs> yeah. They're perfectly happy to sun themselves on a rock. And if they see somebody, they'll fling themselves into the water. No harm done. But there's a story in the book about a fellow who's exploring is back in the, the early in the colonial period of Canada. He was on one of the lakes. Um, I forget which one here on, I think um, he had a, a native woman with him. Um, and they spot this mermaid, you know, uh, just swimming in the water uh, that had the appearance of a young maiden. And then, you know, the, the fish tail, the whole thing, right. Uh, just like you would expect a mermaid to look. And this fellow is, you know, pretty dumbfounded for a minute. And um, he, you know, just kind of stands there with his mouth open. And then for whatever reason, this idiot decides that he's going to shoot this thing. Uh, maybe he thought he was going to bring it back to his king and be rewarded or something. I have no idea why, you know, why he would do something like that. His native companion loses their crap. They, as soon as he gets his rifle out, she just loses it on him and starts wrestling him for the rifle and yelling at him that he can't possibly mean to harm one of the gods of the lake. Yeah. And she succeeds in basically succeeds in wrestling his rifle away from him. And then, gets on a boat and hauls it for shore and, and just leaves them there. Right. Um, so they've lost their guide. They, they, they get back up on shore. They pitch camp. It's Lake Superior. That's what it was. Cause it's the place where the Edmund Fitzgerald sunk. They pitch their, uh, pitch their camp and uh, they've retired for the night. And the mother of all storms blows in they end up having a really bad night because they have to pick up their, their camp in the rain and move it farther up the shore to avoid being drowned, basically, because the, the, the lake is rising so high. The lake is literally coming for them. And, you know, I mean, you can say, oh, well, that was just coincidence. Sure it was. The guy decides he's going to take a shot at a, a, a super, what's clearly a supernatural being. And then the lake just decides to try and eat him that night. <laughs> just don't mess with him. You know, the other thing that, you know, that, that you find, and I don't have any recorded stories of this, but the other thing that you find in the mermaid lore is that these beings seem to be capable of seducing people into the water and drowning. them. Again, just don't mess with it. If you see it, sit down, have a cup of tea, take notes, you know, maybe you can sneak a picture in. I don't know how they feel about that. But don't mess with this creature if you see one. Because, you know, storms and, and disaster follow surely afterwards. Um, I will definitely keep that in mind if I ever encounter a mermaid. <laughs> Interesting thing is John Warms also documents a number of uh, mer person, mer people. I, I don't know what to call them, mer being sightings. Um, and the interesting thing is that a lot of these native folk um, actually are seeing the classic mermaid, and but and classic in that it is uh, Caucasian. You know, it's 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 a white person basically mm -hmm. with red or blonde hair. Now, why on earth would First Nations people be seeing something like that? Now, yeah. in their traditions, are they saying that they've seen these? Yeah, it's not as far as I know. Or? Yeah, as far as I know, it's not a, 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 a 
you know, really a traditional thing. Although the reaction of the native person in that one story seems to indicate that they knew these creatures existed. But why would they be blonde and red haired? Um, you know, you would think that, you know, because most myths, you know, the, the humanoid creatures tend to look like the humans that are telling them. Right, right. You know, you're, in this case, correct. not so much. <laughs> in this case, not so much. And these, these stories are fairly recent where, you know, a young lady goes, when she was a child, she used to go to uh, the lake and, you know, they would go swimming and they'd try to swim underwater. You know, whoever could swim underwater, the longest one, right? And she was underwater and saw one of these things. And, you know, she told John Worms, it's like, after that, I never went in the deep water again. (laughs) You talk also in the book about fairy lore in Canada, Mm -hmm. which I found it interesting that you spelled it F-A-E-R-Y. Is that that more a correct spelling than F-A-I-R-Y? Yeah. I mean, part of the reason that I do that is I like to differentiate these these beings from, okay, there's a couple of reasons why I do this. One, it's, it's the way one of my teachers spelled it. Mm-hmm. Um, I've, I've had uh, some, some contact with a guy who's a Scottish fairy seer, basically, and that's how he spells it. Um, uh, also, uh, so that's, that's one reason. The other reason is um, I want to differentiate these beings from uh, the, the, the Tinkerbell thing that right. everybody visualizes when they think of a fairy. Right. Um, the fairy beings, whether you're talking about Celtic fairy lore or whether you're talking about the fairy lore of Canada, are very powerful um, spirits that have a basically humanoid shape a lot of times, although, you know, in vision you know, you can run into all kinds of strange things in, in the fairy lands. But um, so I, I really, I want to make it clear to people that I'm not talking about Tinkerbell. Um, so this is part of the reason why I use that kind of alternative spelling. Um, but yeah, the, um, the, uh, the fairy lore, particularly of Newfoundland, has been the subject of academic study. There's a wonderful woman named Barbara Rieti who's a who's got a doctorate in I don't know I think folklore or something like that, who wrote a whole book called Strange Terrain, which is all about the fairy lore of Newfoundland, um, and she has actual witness stories of people who encountered these beings in uh, uh, you know in, in Newfoundland and. Um, and some of the beliefs around them there up until even recently, like the 1960s, there was still a belief in some parts of Newfoundland and changelings, which were, you know, the, the story is that the, the fairy will substitute um, one of their babies or, or sometimes a, an old fairy that looks like a baby um, for a human child. Um, nobody in any of the lore has ever been really clear about why they do that. But it's a pretty universal fairy uh, story or mythology. Well, in this particular case, uh, these people had a a young child uh, that had just been born recently. Um, The child's behavior changed very quickly and it became more sullen and uh, unhappy. It had been a very happy baby up until that time. And they decided that, uh, you know, that, that the, the kid was a changeling. 
So dad put the, <laughs> put the baby on a shovel over a fire and told, this is a very standard fairy mythology or fairy uh, uh, lore thing to do, told the fairy that if they didn't give him his child back, he was going to dump this changeling in fire. Um, and abruptly, the changeling disappears and he can hear his old own child um, crying inside the house. So, um, and this, this story is supposed to have happened in the 60s. It was related to, to Riedi by someone who was a relative of the people that it happened to. So it was secondhand, but still. Um, interesting, interesting story. There's also uh, one of the classic uh, kind of tropes of fairy lore is the idea of being fairy led. Um, and the fairy in, in Newfoundland do this in a very odd way. <laughs> um, it's not so much that you're being fairy led, it's that you're being fairy blocked. Um, there's a couple of stories in the book about people who are who were traveling paths that they were familiar with and suddenly came upon a forest that had been there before. Um, in one of these stories, the, the two young ladies that, that encounter this forest, you know, go in a little ways and they, they're trying to figure out where this, these trees came from and what they should do. They run back to their relative's house and they tell them what's going on. And they're like, oh, well, you know, you took the, basically they said you took the wrong road. Um, you know, the North road belongs to the fairies and the South road belongs to us. <laughs> Um, you know, but if you need to go that way, then here's what you do. So they gave them, uh, they blessed them with holy water, which is a, a, a classic um, uh, preventative for being taken by the fairy, which is another thing that, that happens. Um, and they gave them a, a loaf of bread um, to take with them. And when they got to these trees, uh, they were instructed to start, you know, casting the bread out around them. So again, if you read fairy lore in the Celtic countries, the, the people often left the, the farm folk often left offerings out for the fairy beings in their area to, you know, encourage good relations and keep them from destroying their crops and killing their livestock and all that sort of thing. So same sort of thing. These these young girls were flinging this bread around and suddenly this forest that had been there just disappears and they go on their way. Um, so um, very, very interesting. Well, the, in people, a, the people in Newfoundland and the, um, the Atlantic provinces, they yeah. are primarily... Celtic, right? They come from Scotland, right, yeah. Ireland. They're, Nova, they're, they're Nova, Nova Scotia is, yeah, yeah, yeah very much yeah. Scottish heritage. New, heritage new, in the Newfoundland, same new thing. You got a lot of Scots and yeah. a lot of Scots and a lot of uh, you know Northern folk, Northern European folk. Um, there's a, a another story from Lon Strickler about uh, you know again takes place in a Newfoundland provincial park, and um, these two. Uh, young ladies. It's always seems to be two young ladies for some reason. Um, went with their, went camping with their parents and uh, they went to this provincial park and uh, they got their camp all set up and they were all good to go. And, and they were all happy with their campsite and so forth. They um, um, asked their parents if they could go down to the beach. And, you know, sure. Be back in a couple of hours, you know, for dinner or whatever. 
So these two young ladies, and it was a clear day. So these two young ladies um, are walking along the path to the beach and suddenly it gets foggy. Now, <laughs> this relates right back to, you know, <laughs> mysteries of the mist. <laughs> um, it gets foggy and they have that experience of the silence where everything goes quiet, right? Another one of those paranormal markers that Tim Renner talks about, um, or uh, Jenny Randall's talks about too. Um, and and uh, so it gets very quiet and they're, they're seeing movement out of the corner of their eye, which is, is a classic fairy thing. Um, if, if you ever talk to somebody who, associates with fairy beings or, or you read something like Robert Kirk's The Secret Commonwealth, you know, oftentimes they'll tell you that you can't look directly at the fairy. You can only see them out of the corner of your eye. In any event, they're seeing movement in the ferns and stuff, um, but they can't figure out what's going on. So they go down to this beach. It's foggy. It's kind of yick, right? Um, there's a man standing down there. And, you know, it's the 80s, it's Canada. They're like, hi, how are you? You know, blah, blah, blah. No response. He just stands and looks off out, out, out onto the water. So they start to get creeped out and decide, yeah, maybe we'll go back to camp. And this is where things really get strange. This is where you get this kind of fairy-led phenomenon. These two young ladies get on this path, and suddenly they're in a forest that they don't recognize have no idea where they are. And, you know, they, they thought they were on the path to go back up from the beach to, to their, their campsite. Uh, they wander for some period of time and eventually they come out on a road and the, the older girl says, oh, I know where we are. I know if we go this way, we'll get back to the campsite. So sure enough, they follow this road. They get back to the camping area. Their mother and father are frantic. It's like, where have you been? It's like, what do you mean? We've only been gone for an hour. It's like, no, 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 no. They'd been gone for five hours. Missing time. Yeah. So they had some time that was either missing mm -hmm. or there was a, you know, mislocation of time, right? Um, their mother had been up and down the path that they were supposed to be on a number of times and never saw them. The only way other than that path to get back up into the campsite led through dense forest and brambles and thickets and bushes. And so they could, should have been all scratched up. Didn't have a scratch on them. Yeah. Uh, but they made it back to the camp. They were five hours late for where they were. They told their story and they were like, well, okay. <laughs> it's like, don't go to the beach again. <laughs> um, so, yeah, because, you know, dad had stayed with the camper and mom had gone up and down and up and down and up and down looking for these two and could not find them anywhere. Um, so, again, you know, you have that example of being what they call fairy led. And like I said, you know, it's, it's not unheard of. There was a story in the book about someone who's fairy taken, actually taken by the fairy, taken into the other world. And it's very difficult to get somebody back after that happens. Um, you know, you have to know specific, uh, in that particular story, both times the, the person who tried to bring the, the young girl back from fairy um, spoke before they should have and, and lost her back to the fairy realm. Um, and this is, again, you know, a story out of Newfoundland. It's not that old. Um, 
So, yeah, I, you know, when I read those stories, I often think about all those, those missing 411 cases out there oh, <laughs> where right. people yeah, disappear absolutely. mysteriously into the forest. There's a lot, yeah, of, paral- I mean, there's a lot of parallels to all that material. Yeah, you know, I think that, yeah, I mean, Politis has done a fantastic job of documenting a bunch of, of really weird stuff. Um, as a former you know, search and rescue volunteer, I can tell you that, yeah, it's, it's entirely possible for somebody to disappear in the wilderness and not be found. And it's just natural causes. But, you know, there's enough really strange stories in his books, you know, people disappearing from the ends of ropes and things like that, that, you know, you have to wonder, you know, uh, what people are encountering out there. Um, that's, that's making them go poof. Right disappear into the into the mist Mm -hmm. yeah travis this has been awesome i've really enjoyed having you on and talking about all this weird stuff that's in canada and we we barely scratched (laughs) the surface really oh yeah on any of this so um you know like we didn't even really talk about the lake monsters which you have a significant portion of the book about so you guys will just have to buy the book to hear that so but if you uh, want to hear about lake monsters and ufos yeah um yeah there's there's large sections of both in the book so if your interest lies in those areas flying humanoids as well yeah, we got some uh, so, flying humanoids. We got some other flying critters. Where can people get uh, your book, Canadian Monsters and Mysteries? So the book is on Amazon. Um, like all the Beyond the Fray books, it's on Amazon. It's available on Kindle and as a paperback. Um, also, uh, it's available on Kindle Unlimited if you have that subscription service. So, um, you know, it's 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 pretty easy to get your hands on. Um, and you know, like I said. Uh, you know, we really did just touch the surface. Uh, there's, there's phantom ships, there's, um, you know, ghost trains, there's, uh, you know, there's uh, fire spooks and, and all kinds of other interesting 40 and stuff in the book. So if you have an interest in the paranormal, a lot like um, Mysteries in the Mist, you're probably going to find something that you really dig in this book. Excellent. Excellent. Well, I, I really enjoyed the book and uh, hopefully you guys can, can get it as well. And we talked a little bit about this though, but what's, uh, what's next for you on the agenda? So, as I said, uh, right now I'm, I'm up to my neck in, in Sasquatch sightings in Canada. Um, the, the working title of the book is beyond BC, um, because I'm, I'm filtering out all of the things in British Columbia, because obviously that's a huge sighting area. Um, you know, the native people there, you know, have different names for, for Sasquatch, but, uh, you know, that's, that's a, a big sighting area. And I think it's been covered pretty thoroughly in other, uh, books about Sasquatch. Um, however, uh, what I discovered very quickly when I started doing the research for this book is that, um, you know, the, the mainstream cryptozoological Bigfoot type books that you run into out there don't have a lot of Canadian sightings in them. You know, Canadian sightings will be mentioned in passing, um, but then people go back over to the Pacific Northwest, sometimes into British Columbia. Um, There's a ton of of information in Ontario, a ton in Manitoba, a ton in um, uh, um, Alberta. Um, and then I've, I've, I've literally found Bigfoot sightings in, in every province in Canada. So um, my aim is to, um, to put together some a, a book or books on uh, 
the the Sasquatch outside of BC. All right, excellent. And uh, where where can people find um, find you? Um, you can find me on Facebook or uh, Twitter or Instagram. Um, Facebook is uh, I have a W T Watson author page. Um, or if you want to get on my personal uh, Facebook, it's it's Will Watson. Uh, long story there. Um, on Twitter, I'm at WT Watson two, um, and on uh, Instagram, I am Curanir C U R U N I R six zero. Again, another long story, but <laughs> um, so you know, I I am always happy to interact with people who've read the books, who have questions, who have. Uh, witness testimony. Um, you know, I've had a couple of people approach me with black dog stories since I published the Phantom Black Dog books. Um, haven't haven't had any other other strange stories, but I'm sure that'll happen at some point. Um, but I'm always happy to interact with readers and and uh, you know answer any questions that I can. All right, well, excellent. Um, just holding the line for me just a bit as I close out the show. Um, sure. Guys, uh, I want to thank everybody for listening. I thank uh, Travis WT for uh, for being on, and of course the usual spiel, guys. Uh, Patreon.com uh, slash conspiranormal. You guys can uh, go on there. We've got a lot of different um, extra stuff going all the way back to the end of 2016. So you guys can join that for for five dollars and uh there's several different tiers and we're gonna have the next um strange realities online event going on with uh mr joshua cutchin who we're interviewing next week that's july 22nd and of course don't forget to get your tickets for strange realities conference going on october 14th through the 16th here in nashville tennessee so we'll catch you on the other side next week Paranormal. If you would like to help the show, please consider becoming a Patreon at www.patreon.com slash conspiranormal or leave a one-time donation at conspiranormal.com. And please check out our YouTube channel, Conspiranormal Podcast. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.